Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. As ever, Matt Slater with us will reflect on what was meant to be a quiet summer transfer window because of COVID, but has ended up being the most interesting four years. There's a lot to discuss here, but particularly the maths, Matt. Yeah, I sometimes think that the um, the amount of chit chat and attention and hysteria around transfers, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit grumpy about it, to be honest, is out of all proportion, really, with the wider game. Um, certainly transfer deadline day. But I think I even I have to admit that this was a significant and interesting transfer window. Proper players moved. The spend was was higher than expected. And I think the reasons it was interesting are because of the stuff we talk about every week, that what happens on the pitch is really a result of how well run these companies are and who buys them and why they buy them and what they're trying to achieve and the and the trends in the game, the commercial side, the broadcast side. And I think so much of what has happened over the last few weeks just absolutely is our bread and butter on this pod. So I could I, I could take or leave the transfer saga and, and people being, you know, yeah. I don't know, race to the airport and spotted at all this sort of stuff. But you'll take a spreadsheet anytime. Oh, I'll take, you? Well, you I'll take a, yeah, I'll take a spreadsheet and I'll take a sort of I'll take a sort of chin stroking moment about what it all means. So forget tracking private jets on uh, yeah. on on radar systems or online and forget who's been seen in a restaurant in a South Manchester suburb. For Matt in particular, it's all about spending and visas and post-Brexit. Yeah. And all of those will come up in this podcast. We'll be joined later on by the football agent, Urquhart Sogut. But first, we're going to crunch some of these numbers that Matt likes so much. We're joined by Tim Bridge, a director in Deloitte Sports Business Group, a company that provides a range of financial services to sport organisations across the world. So, Tim, thanks for joining us. What's the most important thing to consider when we hear Premier League spending tops £1 billion? It's it's a good point, Mark. It's a really good point. And I think when the transfer window kind of gains momentum, I think everybody becomes obsessed by what's their own club doing or kind of what's the value of a certain deal. But I think when you actually strip it all back, I think the key number to look at this time round is clubs net spend in the Premier League. And what, what that essentially means is that's the net difference between the incomings and the out, and the outgoings. Now, that is at a level that is at the lowest that it's been since 2015-16. You've got to bear in mind that one more deal, obviously the, the big headline one, if you, if you take Harry Kane, if Harry Kane to Manchester City happens and that brings 150 million or more into the 
transfer system and Spurs go on and spend that money with another Premier League club, it just creates a domino effect. You've really got to kind of bear in mind that that it, it, while spending has been tempered, you're only sort of one deal away from it being up year on year and therefore it reflecting a, a bit of a different picture. I think overall, we have to say that clubs have taken a different approach this time round and can we call it cautious when you're still spending that sort of money? Probably not, but it definitely reflects that it's more of a challenge than it's ever been. I suppose if you were going to use the word cautious, Tim, you would look at the net expenditure as a proportion of the club's revenue, and that is significantly down on estimations this year. That's it, Mark. And, and that that's the marker that I like to use the most, really, because I think that demonstrates exactly what the league as a whole's approach is. Now, clearly within that, you will get anomalies. You will get clubs, I think, who are seeing this as an opportunity. You'll get clubs like Chelsea who've been able to generate a significant amount from transfers in. I think I saw a stat that said that the vast majority of their the transfers that they, you know, the, the players they've sold has generated a fee at a time when we've got loan deals and more free transfers proportionally than we've, ever, than we've ever had. You've got to give certain clubs credit that they've been able to use this as an opportunity. And I do genuinely think that certain clubs are thinking, well, if we can leverage our transfers and we've got the cash available to make this happen, or we can spread out a deal across a number of years, well, European football has probably never been in a more challenging position. And can we, can we make hay, basically? Can we actually use this as an opportunity to play well and, and perform well on the pitch and, and win trophies that we otherwise might not have had the opportunity to do so. If a deal is structured in such a way that it is paid over four years, does the whole fee go into these figures of one billion, whereby the club's accounts would do it differently and then then you have that percentage of revenue? You know, football as a business is all about cash. And it's all about how much cash have you got at a point in time and how good are you at planning how much cash you're going to have in the future. These numbers here are the total uh, reported uh, transfer fee. That won't include typically things like the contingencies. So if a player makes 50 or 100 appearances, there'll be an, there might be an extra payment. If, if a club wins the Champions League, you know, we, we often see headlines which mean that if you win a trophy, you've got to pay certain amounts over to all the clubs in respect of your transfers. So they don't include those additional numbers. But ultimately, if you look at the way a tra- transfer deals are structured now, there are there are some exceptions to this, but the vast majority are over three or four years with kind of payments at specific points in time uh, uh, across the period, um, usually split pretty evenly in terms of the transfer fee. So from a buying club's perspective, as I say, it's all about cash flow planning and it can be quite complex and complicated at times, but ultimately clubs will have a big spreadsheet that says this is the timing of of our transfer receivables and our transfer payables and essentially they're trying to get them to balance to the best of their ability. There are so many numbers here that sort of suggest COVID has had an impact, which I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. Gross spend was 1.1 billion in the Premier League. It was 1.3 last year and 1.4 in 2019. So, you know, the last the last summer pre-COVID. So that's sort of 10% chunks year on year. You know, again, I don't think that's a surprise. I think that the thing that's interesting to me is just how 
COVID has not affected everybody equally. And I think that sort of says that we could make the same point about society and, and football kind of reflects that. The spend towards the championship has just dropped off a cliff. Now, last year, some of that was, uh, was around some very sort of savvy, savvy business that Brentford did. But there were, there were 22 deals. Premier League clubs bought 22 players from the championship. It was only, um, what was it this year? Something like seven. Remarkable. That's, 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 that, that, that's a huge drop-off. And there's going to be big implications for championship clubs there. I'm looking at the, um, the European numbers. Now, the Premier League has led the way in spend for years. But the, but the gap is massive now. I mean, as I said, 1.1 million gross spend for the Premier League. Serie A next at 4.75. Bundesliga at 3.60. Liga on at three two five, La Liga, La Liga at two fifty. There's a whole story around La Liga. So, so it's this sort of uneven effect of COVID, and how, as you say, clubs that can, there's a there's an opportunity, isn't there? There's a competitive advantage if everyone's hurting, and you can still spend. Presumably. There's more value there. Yeah, exactly right, Matt. When I worked with a kind of a number of the clubs over the last. 12 months, I think a lot of people expected a, de- a decrease in, in, in the value in the transfer market. That was, that, was, that was almost guaranteed. But I think people also expected that we'd see a little bit more savvy kind of dealings going on. I think we thought we'd see maybe more swap deals where both the transfers kind of were allocated a value. And again, I think if the situation at Barcelona had been slightly different and they'd managed to, to offload some of the players that they expected to offload kind of six to eight weeks ago, then we might be looking at a very different situation here. You end up with Griezmann leaving on the last on the last day of the window on loan almost just to relieve their their, their wage structure and, and nothing else. I think the most interesting figure when you're looking to compare it to the rest of Europe is actually at the net level. So if you take... The Premier League, summer 2021, net spend of 560 million. The next league is La Liga at 55, you know, 10 times the transfer spending. So not only has the have the names and the, the deals kind of attracted attention, but they have driven they have driven spending. Now I'm trying to work out in my head just in the last 24 hours, what is it that, that has made those clubs at the top of the Premier League feel more comfortable and more confident to go to continue to go out into the transfer market. And I think fundamentally, if you look at last year, Arsenal, for example, had a hundred million pound hole in their accounts essentially through the COVID-19 pandemic. Match day revenue generates around about 100 million for Arsenal. Suddenly that money, they've survived the COVID-19 pandemic. They've, they've managed their business in some in some ways um to, to much criticism from certain certain parts, but they've managed the business and suddenly for the next 12 months, they're going to have 100 million more cash coming into their business from the sale of tickets. Now, clearly that's led them to feel more confident and more comfortable about to, to go out into the market and, and to spend as the, highest, um, as the highest spender in the Premier League. The others have followed suit as well. It just really just makes for fascinating, fascinating viewing. The absence of matchday revenues felt by everyone across Europe, right? So that's there's nothing there's nothing sort of unique about uh, English football there. When I look at what's happening there, and I, I think that that ten x lead over the second largest league, second biggest spending league, is is, is remarkable. And they're you know, they're all grouped there, aren't they? Because as you say, La Liga's net spend is fifty five, Serie A's is fifty million. Ligue 1 is 15. Bundesliga actually made a profit. 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge gap on a, on a historic gap. You know, it's, it's, it's moving away. The Premier League are moving away in terms of net spend. But if you sort of, if you actually sort of drill into those leagues, you know, Syria been in decline for a while. I mean, are, are they, are they starting to turn around? Hard to say. They've just lost Ronaldo. La Liga has really been driven by El Clasico. La Liga's sort of commercial success story of the last decade really has been Real Madrid and Barcelona. And that has just crashed. You know, and, and you then start to ask questions about how, how real that commercial success was. And was it at the detriment of the league? That, that, that sort of concept of the league being more important than its sort of constituent parts. I think Spain's got that wrong. Spain's got that wrong for quite some time. Bundesliga, I think, is an interesting one. I think I wonder, I wonder if that's sort of just German clubs and they're sort of, I don't know, sort of, they tend to be quite conservative, don't they, in the market? Um, I, I wonder if they could have pushed the boat out a bit more. I don't know. But all of those leagues have problems. You know, the French League and their TV deal, which we've talked about. I, I, I guess it sort of, it all comes back to where is the Premier League getting its confidence from? It, it, everyone talks about its domestic TV deals. They're, they're just remarkably confident. It is, and, I, and I suppose I think that is a testament to 20, 25, 30 years of building strength in the league. Completely, Matt. And, and also, you've got to remember that the, the success, that success in the Premier League is harder to come by. So for those clubs who are spending, you know, the step change of qualifying for the Champions League is so significant that it's it's almost it's almost reflective of the situation we have in the in the championship, isn't it? Sometimes, whereby you, we call the, the spending in the championship almost a gamble on on trying to get into the Premier League. The clubs at the top of the Premier League are almost here saying, "Well, we have to spend to maintain the competitive advantage to just qualify for the Champions League because that provides us with the financial kind of uplift that's so so interesting." I think in the wake of the European Super League debacle as well. I think the most one of the most interesting things for me here is if you the point you make about La Liga is 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 really valid. I think it remains to be seen what happens from here. You know, Messi and, and the Messi Ronaldo kind of commercial power has 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 now gone, um, and we hear kind of statements from Spain that kind of re- probably reflect that a little bit that there is a, that there is an element of fear and trying to work out where they go next, but. In the, in, the, in the light of the European Super League, what's happened in Spain with the with the CVC proposal, where CVC are going to invest into, into Spanish football, that's been driven by the non-Super League clubs. I think we talked here in the Premier League, what would the 14 other Premier League clubs do in order to drive forward kind of their, their standing and their power in the future? And I think we saw a situation where you know, arguably, those 14 clubs in the Premier League realise just how important and vital the, 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 the other six are um, to the overall strength of the product and the fact that the continual growth of the Premier League needs those six. I think what you're seeing in Spain a little bit is a sense of maybe a growing confidence that, that things at Real Madrid and Barcelona have maybe been a little bit mismanaged in terms of the finances and, and, and the way that, that, that they now stand in, in Spanish football. Then, and the question is in Spain is, have those other clubs actually grown in confidence to say, no, actually, we now believe that we need, need to start doing things collectively for the good of the overall Spanish league. And Real Madrid and Barcelona, you know, it's, it's up to you almost whether you, you come along. And we know they, you know, they haven't agreed, uh, those two clubs plus um, Athletic have not agreed to 
to kind of sign up to the CBC deal. So it's really interesting times generally across European football. You took Arsenal uh, as an example um, when talking about, say, the top clubs, although if they carry on like they are doing, they'll be ambitious if they get £100 million. <laughs> Pounds worth of match day revenue this season. But anyhow, if you look lower down the Premier League, West Ham, Leeds, Brighton, Palace, between them, they contributed 59% of the total expenditure off on, on deadline day. So, you know, they left some of their business late. That, that's one side. But the confidence of the so-called top six, the Super League six, whatever, yeah. is mirrored by the clubs lower down. I mean, Brighton, this is no comment on any other club that I mentioned, but Brighton are an incredibly well-run club, mm-hmm. obviously. What does the what the outside of the big six have done during this window tell you? The message translates, Mark. It's that, it's, it's that it, we've always said, haven't we, that to stay in the Premier League is the number one goal of somebody like Brighton. And if you're if you are fundamentally managing the business in a way that focuses on long-term sustainability, then there should always be funds available for transfers. If you are managing your wage bill, if you're looking at where you finish in the Premier League and the, and the, the value that that drives into the business, then it should allow for the ability to plan kind of on-pitch success. And I think what we are also seeing, what, which is which is an, an interesting point, is the, the transfers have become fundamentally part of the business model now. It's at both ins and outs. So for clubs, this is it, it almost used to be a bit of an add-on 15, 20 years ago. It's now absolutely critical alongside match day broadcasting commercial and almost transfer revenue sits alongside that because it's quite it's quite a it's reflective of, of a point in time within the financial regulations you can use the transfer revenue in a certain year to to comply with the regulations so you see clubs managing it in that way you see them actually thinking about transfers over the longer term I don't quite understand why it's always left so late I, I never really understand that. I can only imagine it's because of firstly that domino effect. So one transfer sparks a lot of other transfers, but equally it could just be that, you know, you get better value on the last day. Obviously the headline of your report and the headline of, of the transfer window is Premier League spending tops a billion pounds. Yeah. So the immediate response to that from the majority of people, I think, would be, and yet some of some of you clubs tried to join the furlough scheme that that when we talk about when we talk about this all operating in a covid world and pandemic that rightly or wrongly and then this is now you can explain whether it's right right or wrong to think like that the immediate thing is you spent a billion pounds on players and some of you tried to and i know most then changed their minds but some of you tried to join the furlough scheme yeah and and, and i think we'll see that even more starkly mark when we see certain clubs financial results as well kind of on an individual basis i think a few people will be will be shocked really to when, when they see that the contrast I, I, if you give people the benefits of the doubt which you know kind of is all, should always be our starting position then last march none of us had any clarity whatsoever as to what the next 6 to 12 months might look like and so if we're being kind then perhaps that was the discussion that went on around those boardrooms as to why you would why you would join the the furlough scheme or why you would look to why is the football business any different to any other business the flip side to that is 
is that football clubs must never forget, and we saw this with the European Super League, must never forget the kind of the societal impact that they have. It is totally disproportionate, frankly, to the headline of a billion pounds worth of spend. An industry that is as small financially as the football industry that has the impact that it has and can have must never be forgotten. And that, that's, the, that's the fundamental point here. I think what clubs and organisations like ourselves and, and, and the Premier League and all the sporting bodies kind of around the world should realise better is that there's a really easy justification to a lot of these numbers, which is the impact and how football supports wider society. I think sometimes we're, we're not that great at, at shouting about that. And certainly the, across the board, people could and should probably do more. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. So we've looked at the numbers involved in the transfers in this summer's window. We'll speak to someone now whose job is to make the deals happen. Uh, pleased to welcome to the pod football agent Urkut Sogut, whose uh, clients include Mesut Ozil. Uh, Urkut, thank you very much for joining us. J- just give us a bit of background about how you became an agent. I studied law in Germany. I became a sports lawyer. I did my master's and PhD in sports law. And I was lecturing more or less and then helping actually family members. And then I ended up literally by helping family members as a lawyer becoming their agents. It was never planned. And I still pursue my career to become a professor at the university in America. That's where I move next year. So I still have this career in my own life, like becoming a professor. But on the other hand, I became an agent on the way by helping parents. And now I teach agents as well. So I'm more in the business. Really, I have students uh, at the moment, more than 60 students worldwide and all over the world and I teach them of becoming a football agent so I like actually the procedure of making someone good helping them to do their job very well and with that I help also FIFA for the last three years actually about the new agents regulations I'm in this group of consultation with FIFA and try to help to how the new regulations could be actually good and how new and what we really need as agents. That's really interesting, actually, because I, I hear older players, it tends to be, maybe maybe, maybe players who, who, who played in the 80s and 90s say, most players really don't need an agent, they just need a good lawyer. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. That's why I'm say, I can always say I'm a, I'm, I'm a lawyer as well. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can argue for both sides. Like they are fantastic sports lawyers, and I and I myself I always work with the lawyer together when I go into a deal into another country. Even I'm a lawyer myself, but the lawyers I work with they're on a daily basis lawyers. 
That means that everything they do is contracts, they go to court, there are other solicitors, barristers. So their day-to-day life as being a lawyer is different than to an agent. An agent's life is more really meeting people inside the business, meeting players, signing players, recruiting. This is so much, it's such a different work of an agent than as a typical lawyer. So there are some lawyers who has a law degree and studied law and become a lawyer, a sports lawyer. They now just work as an agent. Then it makes sense. If they say, look, I work as an agent, then, then it really you can deliver because being an agent today is not just brokering a deal what people think outside. Being an agent is a 360 management of everything. It's so much work. And if you are a lawyer in a law office, you can't do that. So therefore, you need to, being a lawyer is a great advantage in this business, 100%. So you were trained as a lawyer. You're practicing law. You're, you're, you're lecturing. You're, you, you help out a few family members in football. You then find yourself helping more people. When you first got involved in football then and, and deals and players, are you thinking, what the hell kind of industry is this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, many times. <laughs> I, I still do it today. Like, it doesn't, like, we have every time new surprises, like, which I think, wow, this happened? Wow, I can't believe it, like. I mean, this happens all the time. I mean, I was lucky enough to have my first insight 20 years ago, I started. So when I was in the law, uh, when I was at law school, 2001 in Germany, um, I started actually the same year in a, in a football agency, like as a law intern, more like for contract. So I had the insight into Joachim Löw's agent. He's still the agent of Joachim Löw. He was kind of my mentor at the time. And that was 20 years ago. And I was the first years with him intern work but that was my insight because I wanted to be in sports law I didn't know uh, but I wanted to lecture more and see the practical side I said when I'm a lecturer at university I want to know the practical side I don't want to be a theoretical professor I need to do no both that's why when I start studying law I need to be in an office where sports management sports law is practice but the first five years it was never like that I would say hey I will become an agent it was really like seeing contracts learning but my mentor told me, like, if you, I'm, I'm, after a couple of years, I mentioned to him, I might become a, I might consider maybe become a sports agent, like a football agent, but more like basketball. So that's why I done basketball, hockey, and football license. I saw myself more like a representing different sports, not than just football. And he said, you need to learn to walk over dirt. <laughs> and then, and I was like, what is he saying? Like, and I was like, nah. but then I realized what he means. Like, and nowadays, every time I see like, wow, this is a different world, like where kickbacks are going all the way along and uh, coaches who done kickbacks or who done bad stuff becoming a new job in Premier League. And I'm thinking like, it's weird. Like, it was like someone's got sacked because of bad stuff and it gets a new job at the Premier League. Like, and uh, then you think, wow, what kind of world is that? You talk about, you know, you can do a bad job and you can get another job. So when a transfer window comes along, like has come along, are you looking at more than just money? And if you are, are you unusual? I'm a very unusual agent in representing players. If you would see uh, the players I represent in England, the youth players, they're the best at school and they're the best at football. Like kind of, that's my target. Like that's, that's the players I want to work. I have a player is going to city of London school. He's doing his A-levels, but they already had a professional contract at Fulham. The same at Swansea. He's doing A-levels at best at school and also fantastic in football, signed a pro contract with 17. The same in Ipswich, same in, uh, in Leicester. So that's kind of a player recruitment I have. And this is my young agents I taught. So my team is actually taught by me. 
and I work with them. So they went here, they came to London, I educated them, made them lawyers and agents and sent them back to their countries. Now in Germany, Austria, Turkey, and in England, I have my own team and they're young 25 years old agents and they're recruiting now, but we have all the same target group. Good at school, good family, good at football. So then it makes, it's nice working with them, right? It's a, it's a day-to-day -day work for us, it's fantastic because I was last week in Finland in recruiting players and uh, two under 17 national team players and one under 19. And amazing parents, amazing players, families are very well educated. They say, if football doesn't happen, what kind of other choices we have? Uh, can they go to United States on a scholarship and study? And that's what I do. I meet coaches in USA for players who might not be able to break through in England and to provide them a second opportunity. So, so, I'm, so this is a kind of clientele I work with. I mean, the Ozils and stuff, they were the first clients. They are like a different clientele, right? They're the top players. I mean, I met Ozil when he was on the peak of his career. But I like players working with when they're young, 16, 17, and build their career. That's the biggest joy I have when they sign their first pro and their second and become successful, uh, international appearances. That's the joy for me day to day. So I came today in our under 21 national team player for Ireland. He's actually Fulham. He's 17. He's just turned 18. He got COVID. He can't play. So that was a bad news this morning, right? And then you're disappointed, but this is football. Okay, just um, sort of turning then to, to this summer, because we've been, we've been talking earlier in the pod about, about the spending and about what, what lessons we can learn from that, the trends that we can pick out. Just for you, how, how was this summer? How did, it, how did it go? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, it was good. I done most of the deals in the first part of the transfer window. And I don't, uh, I, I'm not representing Ronaldo or Messi, so I didn't have uh, these kind of uh, deals. So it was like really young players from Germany to Turkey or from uh, or within England, within Germany. We had some deals within Austria. And, and, and it went quite well because we done our work before. So I tell my agents and my group to do the work. We actually know in uh, March, April, May, if the player will move or not and for which condition. So we done the pre-work. We're not going into the transfer window and say, let's look what's happening there and let's try. It doesn't, it's not like most of the work of an agent is before the transfer window. The transfer window is just when we execute it. And a lot of people don't know that, I think. So, so it, was a good, it was a good window for me. And what I've done over the COVID time is I recruited a lot of young talents for the future. That was very important for me. So I'm, I'm quite happy with the team and that uh, what we achieved in all these countries where we are. So it's a growing steady growing group and business. So I'm, I'm quite happy. Well, I think coming into this window, many of us expected spending to be down. We thought there'd be more swap deals. We just thought the clubs would struggle, you know, coming off the back of, you know, the pandemic and um, all that missing match day revenue and everything they've been saying about their losses. I think spending was down, you know, net, the net spend was clearly down, but it was still significant. It, it, you know, the Premier League alone spent 1.1 billion in terms of their gross spend and obviously we spent the last few weeks talking about some very 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 high profile moves so it wasn't a boring transfer window how did you how did the people you talked to in the industry how did you find the market this summer how did you approach it was it harder was it different the expectations were after if you go back like in the last one year what happened and COVID and clubs were saying we need money and we will have financial problems and what will we do and uh, uh, salary caps and uh, uh, players should get less money and stuff. And then they put employees out of jobs. 
uh, and said, we can't employ uh, these people anymore. We don't have money and spending them more than 100 million one year later, it, it's kind of, uh, it shows like it's not how it was like one year before, right? A lot of clubs use that as well as an excuse and uh, to just cut money and not really that they have needed it. And, uh, and especially also with the Super League issue now, we need the Super League, uh, COVID is coming, but then still having more than 100 million to spend, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense, right? And you would have expected that this, this window, the numbers would get down for the first time after COVID and after everything happened, that clubs might start at, hey, come on, that's, uh, that doesn't make sense spending 100 millions for a player, maybe we're coming to the senses and, and changing it. But it didn't happen. And it was also surprising like that it didn't happen for my, I, I wasn't expecting these monies. I've seen deals like where we're thinking, was that really necessary like? Even like big clubs making certain deals, I felt like, I mean, you have so many players at that level, that quality. Why do you pay another 100 million like where you have already four or five of them? It felt like it doesn't impact it. Uh, for the big clubs, it doesn't impact it at all. COVID doesn't, was, was it there or no? It was the same kind of, they took their players. Man United got three big players. Man City got a big player. It was a window of big names as well that we had for the first time. So many big names were in the transfer market with Ronaldo, with Messi, with Lukaku, with Grealish, but also with Harry Kane was in a very interesting case uh, for the first time that he couldn't go was a big thing. And I think that the big clubs were not affected much, but the lower clubs, they got affected. That's what I hear also from agents who are representing players in uh, mid-table, lower table, especially outside the Premier League. When you go to France, Italy uh, and uh, Spain, Turkey, there you will find agents struggling. And they call me, hey, we can't, they want to move my player. We can't. We don't have any other club who's paying the same amount of salary. So these players actually got a lot of cuts. You see many clubs now having more players than they need, and they will play probably in the under-23 and taking the space of the younger ones. It's a very interesting window, like which I was never expecting to be, be like that. And that shows always football has a different or its own rules. It's commercial. It's about football is becoming more commercialized. And these transfers actually showing that it's about exciting fans to come to the stadium and to buy merchandise and be engaging and buying online and everything it's a part of the game and if you bring that kind of big names it attracts sponsors it attracts media so that's that's what they do that as well sometimes they don't do it because of the performance on the beach it's more than for for the fans our fans are customers today they're not fans anymore for the clubs i'm saying they see them as a customer and not really a fan group anymore they see them as a data, like how many data can I, and who has the data is king in the business. And that's why these big clubs, they need these kind of players to come in so they can create more uh, commercial income, also data to use these so-called fans as customers and worldwide. It's a worldwide business now for them. There are three things here, I, I suppose, out of that one answer. So firstly, has this been a window, and maybe there have been a couple of others like this as well, where it is quite hard to move players on at all sorts of levels. Players who are in squads at the big clubs don't get moved on because they're quite happy on the salary that they're picking up there. But in those lower leagues, maybe the market isn't there as much from the mid-level lower clubs in the, in the big leagues to bring them in because the money isn't there. So actually selling players has proved hard this window. 100%. So uh, that was one of the biggest issues for the clubs there to get rid of, so-called rid of players, to get them off the books. Right. And you can still see some clubs have still players they want to get rid of like this still because there's still some markets are open. So Turkey is, uh, for example, open until the 7th of September. So you will see actually in the next few days, players from the championship and Premier League will go to Turkey. 
and to other Middle Eastern countries. So they usually keep, they open the window late and then close it late because they would like to wait and see which players are in the market after the transfer window in England is closed. So then the demand is not that high. Like if they ask for the, in the beginning of the transfer window, that player cost 10 million. Now it's probably 1 million. So because the club just want to get rid of the player because they can't register it even, the player maybe. The lower teams, their biggest problem was to get rid of these players. Even the big clubs had that. But the big clubs can still get two more players and still keep big names on the bench or even not in the squad because they have the money. But smaller clubs can't do that. They can't compete with the commercial income of the big clubs. So they really needed to get rid of the players, which a lot of clubs couldn't. So they, that, they will face the issue during the season, actually. This also appears to be in the transfer window where the importance of a player's contract has come into stark focus. Now, that, that could be in a whole variety of different ways. That, that could be Harry Kane signing a six-year deal three years ago that he isn't going to be able to get out of. It could be Jack Grealish's team putting a clause in his contract at Villa where if a fee was met, then he could go. It could be Mbappe and Paul Pogba, as you look at at the moment, more than happy to see out their contract and then see what happens. It could be Barcelona not affording a contract. Contracts, in some ways, the contract is the key rather than the fee nowadays. Is that Would that be accurate? Yeah, I mean, you can say that, I guess. I think like with the Bosman since 1995, we, I mean, Messi is a Bosman deal, right? So... Yeah. I mean, if you see like Messi and Ronaldo both went for together 20 million or something like that. I mean, this is, this is like, this is nothing like if you, for these two top players and still like play top football. And I think this will be more the case in future that players will run out their contracts because clubs won't be willing to pay horrendous amount of money. And they, some, the mid-table and lower table clubs, especially in Europe, outside uh, Premier League, can't pay that anyways. So there will be some clubs like Real Madrid who says, look, I pay you 200 million on the last day, which you might say, wow, that's crazy. And then on the other hand, you would say, wow, PSG is not accepting it. It's crazy too. So, <laughs> so what is like normal and what is, uh, what is unusual? And I think, yes, contracts is becoming very important and players know the power of that and agents as well. They know the power of a contract running out, having, the, having it in your hand. But... This year, the contracts run out this summer. Not all of them are... I mean, we, when we talk about big players, we always have to distinguish the top players and the lower players because if a player's contract run out this summer, lower league, then he had a problem, right? So then you would have wish having a contract two years longer. So, so to go over the period of COVID and then when the market is better for these players and leagues. But for a top player... Doesn't make a difference if the contract run out now in the pandemic area or after or before, because he will have a market to go to the big clubs and and, and get big uh, wages, uh, like huge wages. Like one of the other big issues for me, or, or something that I heard more this window than I have in previous windows, and it's it's no surprise, is the issue of visas, and I'm specifically talking about yeah. the UK post Brexit. I've I've heard from a number of clubs who have struggled to get visas for their players. They had the governing body endorsement, which we yeah. know about, which we thought was going to be the issue. You know, yeah. would my player have enough points to qualify for a visa? I'm led to believe that that process worked pretty well because it was all quite transparent. You you knew how you earned points. You came from a top league. You played in a European competition. You played under 21s, whatever. You worked out your points. Yes or no. You got your 15. 
you'd qualify, right? The yeah. problem then was, okay, the Home Office, who's in charge of immigration, yeah. getting that all-important sticker in your passport. And I'm led to believe, you know, some clubs have sort of managed to do it in two or three days. Others, yeah. it's been two or three weeks. They've missed games. You know, how have you found that? How, how have people you've spoken to found that? With the visa, I mean, it's a very interesting procedure because you need more time now. And a lot of clubs haven't done it. And it's a, they couldn't risk it in the last day. You would see in the past that still an international transfer would happen, but this didn't work out this year. There were more signing players within UK. So it's easier to sign a player on the last, in the, on the deadline day. And, uh, but, to, but the procedure is not easy because to get a visa, you need to be outside, but you need to be the medical here. So what happened is some clubs have done the medical outside UK. So to save the time for the player to come for the medical, go back, apply for the visa outside UK, then get the visa and then come back. So it's a procedure. It's not easy. That's why I think Ronaldo had his uh, medical, I guess, in Portugal, where the Man United guys went over. So, but not every club can do that, or especially the lower league clubs, they will not do that. Like, uh, it's impossible to send hold the team medical over and do all these things. Finances is not easy. So, I think it's a it's an interesting window in terms of. I think it's good for the British football in general. In my personal opinion, I'm coming from Germany and seeing like following the last eight, nine years, English football, how the youth developed. And now, why shouldn't be the English youth players that valuable like the French ones, right? I mean, I mean, now they have top facilities, which they didn't have eight, 10 years ago. Now they're having also better coaches, which they didn't have eight, 10 years ago. So, and now that with, with these new regulations, under 18 years of players can't come anymore to England, is such a great opportunity for players at Fulham, at Ipswich, and Man United, wherever all these young players who were competing with 16, 17, 18 years old players from Spain, Italy, Germany, Belgium, France, they're coming over and taking their space. Like, and that was a huge problem for these young players, which I've seen. Now they have the opportunity to, you know, to be there and to play, get minutes. I think that's a great opportunity for the English players themselves to, to develop and then go abroad when they're 18 as well. Well, we certainly hope so. I mean, that's that, that was the idea. Um, look, one more from me, just in terms of, of um, something we've heard a lot during the window. We've heard it in previous windows, but it's just been a sort of real, it's been a dominant theme, I think, for the last couple of weeks. And this idea that certain transfers can pay for themselves. Yeah. And I think you touched upon it two answers ago when you were talking about how some of these transfers are driven for commercial reasons and the social media traffic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, you have one of those players, right? Mesut Ozil is a famous player. He has more social media uh, followers than his club, right? I I, I assume by by a fact, by a considerable number, I'd imagine. So, so, so is that true? Are there, is there a type of player? Are there some deals that you can, say you know objectively you can go through it and say this deal could should might pay for itself i mean yes definitely because we are entering more and more into the area like within uh united states that it becomes more players league so even if the clubs don't like it i know the clubs don't like it the power shifts from clubs to the players fans are going more and more to the stadium to watch a certain player and i think imagine like uh, fans going also to watch Lukaku or Grealish now because they want to see them in the new shirt, new stadium, new team members. They want to watch them play. And, and players becoming more important every day with that because having their own media is such a big thing. 
that that didn't ex uh, existed 10 years ago. Players didn't have that. They needed the normal media to talk to. So now can player, the biggest thing is they can engage directly with the fans. What a big power that is, which was clubs doing, but players couldn't do that. Now players can engage and build their own fan group and their own fans all over the world. It's unbelievable, the power of that. And of course, if a player with 100 million fans or 200 million social media fans comes to a club, it brings then new attention to the club. Also, I don't think just the jersey sale makes the money. As some say, it's only the jersey sale because on the jersey sales, Puma, Nike, Adidas, they make the big money, not the clubs, right? So they make a huge amount, 80, 90% of every jersey sales goes usually to them. A very small percentage actually is going to the club. So I don't think the jersey sales will bring the money back, but attracting big sponsors will 100% come into the club because big sponsors, when they come to a club, they choose usually two, three players and say, we want to be on a club day in this club with these three players. And if you have Ronaldo, right, then it's already big, right? If you have Messi or the sponsor, yeah, I want to be engaged with Messi because Messi reaches five million, 500 million people. I, as a club sponsor, want to have Ronaldo because he reaches 500 million. So I want to use that player, not the club anymore that much. I want to use the player, the club's player to reach fans. So I think it's shifted and it's shifting more. And we will talk about the Premier League in future more as the players lead, like we talk about the NBA or the America or the NFL. It's, it's where it goes. It becomes like kind of a, not the circus, but it's like an <laughs> entertainment, right? It's like where the players are the entertainers and now we will have uh, Mbappe, uh, Neymar, and uh, and Messi in one lineup, it's entertainment, right? People will see that for the first time, these kind of three players in one team. And then you have Sancho, Ronaldo, uh, Veran, and all the other players in the other team. So it's, 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 it's really where it goes to. And I think it's shifting step by step towards the players. But the NFL embraced that commercial uh, pull of the player in, in that they they publish a league table on who sells the most shirts. And, you know, there is competition between the players. And also, you know, are they, you know, because shirt numbers are a big discussion at the moment, whether Ronaldo gets seven and so on and so forth. <laughs> but but if you, also, if you want if you want a shirt number at, a, at an NFL team and somebody's already got it, you have to buy it from <laughs> you as the individual, have to buy it from Imagine. the player. And, yeah. and also, if you choose to change number, the NFL make you buy all the merchandise that has your name and number on it because all of that's going to have to get dumped. So yeah. they embrace that that commercial pull of the individual. I think it's uh, it's very interesting. And I think with the numbers issue, I had that with Mesut. He was waiting for the number 10 at Arsenal so long. Even when Jack Wiltshire was alone at Arsenal and Mesut yeah. waiting for the number 10 for three years or so, he waited for it literally to get it like. And... But he had to wait about nowadays. I think it will be go faster and quicker because the commercial value behind and everything, the player strength. I think it will be faster than three years. Is that Urquhart because the 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 number ten was important commercially for for Mesut and and the deals that he had, or his Twitter handle, or his Instagram handle? Is is was was that why? Yes, because he's a number ten, and for him it was important to wear it because he wore it at Real Madrid. With Arsenal, he wanted the national team. It, it kind of, it makes him the gladiator, I guess. He needs it mentally as well, not just for commercially. It's also mentally like, I am playing number 10. I am I'm wearing number 10. So it's like how important for Ronaldo is number seven. It was uh, important for Messi to be the number 10 on the pitch. So it was important. But also 
it's, it's just different. Number 10 in football, because all the legends in the past, Maradona was a number 10, right? So number 10. So uh, all the big players in the past were actually the number 10s. Today is shifted as well. It's not anymore about the 10 much. All of this embraces, just going back to a player's contract, at the highest level, may, maybe not quite when you're bringing them first through at Fulham or Ipswich, or yeah. but at the highest level, that co- that contract understandably has to be watertight because every, every sponsor of Manchester United will, as you say, will want Ronaldo as part of their deal. <clears throat> well, Ronaldo might have deals with competitors to the club sponsors. So doing a contract for a high-level player, as you would do with, with Meza of, of Fenerbahce, is an incredibly complicated legal document i am guessing nowadays it is it is it changed a lot i said these kind of players are like ceos of their own companies now when they go to negotiate a deal it's like you are the player is a ceo and then you have lawyers tax advisors is like negotiating so many things and it's and it's more commercial so we have an image right contract in place so in the in in england most not most but a lot of players would have today an image right contract next to their employment contract so next to their salary they have an image right contract, and that exactly uh, explains everything in it about the player's own commercial already deals he has, and then the club's commercial partners, how many appearances he has to do, how much money is he getting for that, for these commercial appearances. So that's all regulated in this commercial deal, this image right contract. So the image right of a player is becoming more important with every day, and clubs are signing new contracts about that. But you can't pay more, more than, I think... I think it's about, I think it's 20% or was it 10 or 20 at latest? I think HMRC wanted to change something. I don't know if it's changed. A certain amount of the money, not much on an image right contract. So you can't pay Ronaldo two, uh, like 90% on an image right contract and 10% of the salary. So because a lot of money will go then as well, maybe to uh, countries where there are no tax uh, and, and these kind of things. So yeah, this is the uh, one thing. Uh, in future, we will see more the commercial deals than the normal employment deal. Manchester United swooping in at the last minute, apparently, to sign Ronaldo. Yeah. Does, <laughs> are you surprised that anybody could do a last-minute deal with a player of that stature, given the complexities that you've spoken about? I mean, I don't think it's a last-minute thing. I think they were always in touch, and there were always the opportunity, and always the talk with people inside the club. There's always a touch. So there's always talks like, even though maybe... It will happen tomorrow, but their contact's already there and uh, people know Ronaldo might leave. Man- Manchester United have considered it anyways or- already many times in the transfer window, how it would look like if we do it. So it was everything kind of ready. And when, when really it w- was going on, then it was quick because it's, it's not that difficult in the-, in the end anymore because it was not like a big surprise. They made it like, hey, we took him away from Man City or stuff. I mean, this is just a story they would tell. I don't think it was like that. I think it was already like planning and uh, it was kind of ready already. Okay, thank you very much for coming on. Fascinating to talk to you. Really no appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks to all our guests this week. Uh, Dan Bardell back on this feed on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. I'll be back on Tuesday for the Athletic Football Pod. And then Matt will be back with us next week for the Business of Sport pod. Thanks for listening.
The Athletic.